This is episode 119 of Off Script with Trish Glow's intimate interviews with interesting people. A very special interview this week. I recently sat down with Medford Fire Chief Eric Thompson and Battalion Chief Jason John for a news story I'm working on. It's about the deadly Almeda fire that ripped through Southern Oregon back in September, and it captured headlines across the country for days after. I wanted to post the entire interview right here. It's stories we haven't heard yet from inside the fire, what they saw, and the tough decisions and calls the two were making that day. So before we get started, Jason John obviously is your name, but everybody calls you JJ. They, do they not call you Chief? Uh, yeah, they, they do, yes. Out of respect, they should. Yeah, <laughs> Chief JJ sometimes, but yes, they, they do, yeah. How long have you been with the fire service? Since 1994. How long with Medford? It's 2001. Okay, where were you before Medford? City of Newport. Oh, okay, so up north. Uh, on, the, on the coast. Coast, okay. Central Oregon coast. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. What made you want to come to Medford, apply for Medford? Um, it was a, that was a small community, a small department, and I was the only paid guy on duty kind of thing to uh, come into an actual agency that had multiple engines in the system and okay. multiple people on an engine. You started out as firefighter in Medford mm -hmm. and then just moved up in the ranks? Uh, yep, firefighter, engineer, to captain, and now battalion chief. Oh, you've hit all of them. Congratulations. Thank you. Is this where you feel good right here as battalion chief? Yep, I do. Briefly, what is, what is the, the job of the battalion chief? You're kind of the crew boss, right, for all of the, the crews on your shift. Yeah, so the captain would technically be considered the crew boss because they are in charge of the crew, but um, I think it, you go from just crew level management to managing all of the company, all of those individual crews. So um, it's more of a command and control position as well as administrative for the day-to-day -day, um, operations of the actual fire department. Sure. Um, Chief, you've been in the fire service how long? Since 1995. Okay, and how long with Medford? Since January. Right. Brand new. I just new. started my 11th month. Brand spanking new. We kind of joked about that, you yeah. know, talking. It's your welcome to Southern Oregon was an insane fire season. It was. And I, and I even want to say it wasn't necessarily, we didn't have a big fire season, right? Because no. when we normally see fires, wildland fires, which I know you guys don't deal with a lot, but it came hard and fast. It did, all at once. Right pretty much. I mean, there wasn't a, there wasn't an ease into it. It was my whole first year has been, um, one challenge after another, you know, starting with COVID. No doubt. And so it's, it's forced me to learn the guys. It's forced me to learn the system in the Valley. And so on one hand, um, appreciates a bad word, but I, I kind of appreciate the opportunity to, to get to know our folks so fast, but it's, it's been an emotional roller coaster this year for sure. Uh, let's go back. You and I have actually talked about this before. Let's go back to September 8th. I think that is a day we, none of us will ever, ever forget here in Southern Oregon. Um, you guys, and when I say you guys, people in the fire service knew that day was going to be interesting. It was, you know, and, and actually prior to the 8th, we were talking about the 8th and and so the, just looking at the weather and looking at the, uh, we, we saw the, the wind patterns were changing, the extreme, you know, the temperatures were increasing, the humidity, 
uh, we knew that if there was an event, it was going to be substantial. And so we had conference calls that morning. And uh, I won't forget this. The state told us it's John Wayne time if you have anything. And the reason they said that is because there was so many other things going on throughout the state. Resources were thin. And so they're, they're basically, they were sending a strong message to us, you need to be self-sufficient for a while. And so uh, we took immediate action as soon as we hung the phone up. Um, a lot of our command staff were already here. They were in a meeting at Station 4. So I interrupted the meeting and started texting them. And saying we're, so we beeped up and we did emergency call back and we staffed extra engines. And, and uh, I'm just thankful that we did we were able to do that. And prior to the fire, we were able to have, in essence, two battalions, you know, double what we normally have. Right, exactly. Um, I know when I said goodbye to my firefighter husband that morning, he looked at me and said, today could be wild, be safe. Um, when you walked out the door that morning, what were you thinking? Uh, exactly that. I got up that morning and I knew the red flag conditions were coming, but throughout that week leading up to it, they actually decreased. You know, there was an expected, like almost sustained 50 mile an hour wind that was reported initially with the red flag and that got decreased as, as the eighth got closer. But I woke up that morning and shut off, um, you know, a fan that I had in, in my room and the the hum the 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 noise continued and I'm like what in the world and I looked outside and it was it was crystal clear to me you know what what was uh, what could potentially be in store for us because um, we I knew we were dealing with triple digits I knew we triple digit temperatures single digit RHs and then uh, that that level of wind um, for I mean all of us on the West Coast are familiar with these larger incidents, but for the fire service, I knew it was car fire, campfire, you know, that, that level of um, weather that we were dealing with. Exactly. I mean, I think as a, a fire guy, I would think seeing with all the other conditions, sure, it's dry, it's hot, but when you have wind like that, I mean, it just, it was spooky to me. That morning was a little spooky to me. So. The call comes in, I think, around 11. I can, I can look that up. I think it was just 11.04. 11.04, there you go. <laughs> call comes in at 11.04. Um, a, a crew from Medford goes pretty quickly after. Like, I think, I want to say, like, a few minutes after that initial call comes in. A second alarm, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So an engine from Medford goes. At what point, JJ, do you respond to the scene? So... When they dispatched the Medford company, I was also on that alarm. Um, Ashland had sent their first alarm resources and it quickly escalated to a second alarm. And on that second alarm, I was on that dispatch and with, a, I think an engine from Medford as well as a brush rig. So it was in that first five minutes of the incident. At what point do either of you know, was it all hands on deck, every engine in Medford on this fire? Probably a good hour into it that it was going to be. Uh, so initially, it very quickly escalated to a second alarm. Um, and then hours in, probably 30 minutes, 30 to 45 minutes really. Um, whenever the houses started catching, 
because you had the grass fire, the grass fire went to second alarm, and then about 10 minutes later, they started dispatching uh, the first structure fire on Glendower. Um, and then the dispatcher came on and said, there's now at least three homes on fire and that kept growing. Um, that's when we knew that this was gonna be greater than um, we had resources for, because it was quickly escalating. When you arrive on scene, um, where do you even start? Well, um, at that point, there was, it was still small enough that we didn't have, we weren't overwhelmed with resources quite yet. And um, like I said, I, I left pretty, or I was dispatched early on. So I was given Glendower um, Division, which was, you know, to hold, hold this line of this, this street worth of houses. And um, I had one of our Medford engines and a couple of the Oregon Department of Forestry engines. And we just basically protected those homes. Now at that time, you know, this is where the fire started, so it was moving away from us. Um, we didn't stay there long, but that's, that's where I initially went. So are you at this point just chasing this fire? You're trying to get ahead of it? Well, because we had this place where I was, I was at, there was fire burning directly up to it, and that's obviously a threat to those homes. So it was not the greatest threat because it was downwind was the greatest threat. Um, I think the command structure was trying to just play catch up with how quickly the incident was evolving. Um, this, unlike any other fire I've ever been on, we would normally bring resources in in a organized manner where they would arrive, stage, be deployed to the, the area where they're needed the most at the moment. I've never heard radio traffic like I did this day. It was, um, there was no talking from one engine to another or one um, resource to another. It was dispatch saying, we have an entrapment. We have an entrapment. We have an entrapment. We have an entrapment. Now and to us, entrapment means there is somebody who is stuck inside of a house that is on fire. They are unable to get out. And so that person is going, going to die without intervention. So that terminology very specifically um, just, you know, consumes all of your attention. And so these resources, instead of coming in and staging like we would normally do and then deploy them uh, to the most critical areas, it was like sending this engine to this entrapment, that engine to that entrapment. And so our command structure, um, by just the sheer scale of the incident, broke down pretty pretty quickly. There's nothing yeah. you can do about that. No, no, no there wasn't, no, there wasn't. No. When you heard that, you know, over the radio entrapment over and over and over again, what's going through your, your mind at that point? That's, it was sickening because you, I mean, you could see this monster in front of you and you, and it was just getting bigger. And, um, you know, I'm extremely familiar with the resources that are available to us down here. And uh, to Chief Thompson's point earlier, when he said that uh, it was John Wayne time, that's, that is not normal for us. We are typically one of the higher hazard areas of Oregon, and we do get to lean on our other counties and communities across the state in our, in, you know, these, these times when it's, when it's really hot and dry and windy and we have these conflagration fires. It is not uh, usual for 
um, the, the coastal counties, for example, to have their own fires like they did that day. They, they are typically available to us. Um, the, the metro areas, you know, where they don't have the same um, threat, they're typically available to us. And um, so anyways, knowing that we didn't have any backup resources and that we're just getting spread to the wind, it was, it was really, uh, a really sickening feeling. And I know, Chief Thompson, you were, you know, not necessarily on the outside, you were right there in the thick of it too. I was, and I didn't start out that way. So as our resources were shifting south, I positioned myself where they were, covering Medford. And so the more resources we were moving south, we were all just rotating. And so it was about two o'clock in the afternoon, right after lunch, it was becoming very obvious that this fire was encroaching Medford. Um, that's when uh, I positioned myself in the Phoenix area. Um, on Interstate 5, about 2.30, watching the fire, it was really starting to move more easterly. Um, at 3.04, I took a picture and videoed this. About 3.04 is when the fire shifted from going east to a more northwest direction. Um, that was right at exit 24, um, which is right by those storage units, um, the truck stop there. Um, and it was going through Phoenix very rapidly. Um, that's when I became engaged actually in the firefight. Uh, I went from more of a strategic planning mode to more of an operations mode. Um, typically as a fire chief, um, I wouldn't do that. However, we were thin officers and we were thin chiefs and um, the incident required that engagement. It's a, our goal was to try to stop it and not allow it to progress through Phoenix. Um, that became very obvious that that task was something that probably an, an un, unrealistic goal. At the, and whenever you're standing in the street and you have fire on both sides of the street um, and then behind you and you look the other direction where there's no fire and all of a sudden now there is a wall of fire because the ember wash from the head of the fire has traveled two miles in front of you. Uh, it's just hard to get ahead of that. And so if you can imagine uh, the city of Phoenix is small, you have minimal lanes coming in and out. There was an evacuation in progress. Um, so you're looking into the eyes of the people in the cars and evacuating and you see the fear in their eyes and they're asking you for directions. They're asking you for help. What do we do? Where do we go? But at the same time, where are my firefighters? Where do I need to place these engines? Are the fire engines going where they don't belong right now? So, you know, you're really torn because you're managing an evacuation slash rescue, but also strategic and tactics on the firefight. And, and so you have engine captains that are looking for you for direction, advice, guidance. Um, but then you have a citizen on the other side of you going, where do I need to go? And, and so 
that's tough. That's tough to manage and separate that. And so, you know, it's at one point we were standing by the Phoenix Hotel. Our goal was to not allow the fire to burn the hotel. We really thought uh, for about the 20th time we were going to be able to make a stance here. Um, And here comes a gasoline tanker. And the gasoline tanker was stuck in traffic, nowhere to go. Fire's coming north. It's gridlocked. I look at the, the engine, and I'm like, do you see what I see sitting right there in the middle of the road? And it's a gasoline tanker surrounded by fire. And I was like, that is a bomb. We have to get this thing out of here. And so just the effort that it took, you know, to get that vehicle redirected and out of here. And, and it, was, it was massive. And just the stuff, that it's, it's hard to sit here and really describe to you what's really going through your mind um, because there's so much and it's never ending. You have the radio traffic that's nonstop, nonstop, nonstop. And, and this is, it is so dangerous at this point, not only because of the fire, but just the ability to really have a situation awareness as to what's going on your immediate surrounding, but a block over, two blocks over, what is dispatch saying? Um, we were utilizing so many channels. The dispatcher wasn't able to be on all the channels. So we may be talking back and forth on the radio and dispatch not even knowing what we're talking about. And so then we have to remember to switch over to another channel and relay critical information. It's just, it was, um, it was overwhelming. I've heard that a lot, that a lot of the guys on the ground didn't really know where they were. They didn't know where the fire was, where it was burning. Time, forget about that, don't know what time it is, how long have you been in this location? Was it so overwhelming, JJ, that, that were you feeling that same thing? I wasn't, and that, you know, my job is to do the command and control. I'm not out there doing the, the tasks like, uh, like our engines actually are. So it is very much my job to kind of take that chaos and rein it in, make, get, those, get those guys to where they're they f- they're feeling comfortable with where they're operating and how they're operating. And so um, the engines, yes, that happened because we sent them to that entrapment. Thing is, is they go there, they confirm there's nobody in the house, the fires burn past them. And now what they're doing is they're, they're calling uh, who's in charge or who sent them there to like, hey, there's nobody here, where do we go now? They were unable to make those communications back to uh, uh, command or whoever was in charge of them and so it put a lot of these resources kind of out there on their own. That is not at all something we do. So um, these, these officers, these captains of these rigs were, you know, they, they know better than to freelance. And so they are, you know, it, beyond the fire, it's causing, you know, anxiety for them that they, they're not operating inside the system. They want to get back in the system and be deployed as they should. And it was just the system was so overwhelmed that you know you had now at this point you know a hundred different resources trying to get a hold of one person who's in charge. Well, talk to me about the decision making because you were among others in in the thick of it, having to decide what crews go where and then pulling them out of certain situations. Yeah, that was uh, difficult, and it it changed. I can tell you all all of the uh, command staff on in, in all of these agencies, not just Medford, um, 
our, um, our decision matrix was progressing as the time went on. And what I mean by that is in the beginning, we, we, I approached it like, like a structure fire, like multiple places burning. We're just gonna go put those places out and we'll stop this thing. That was not going to happen. And in fact, uh, it really, I, I'm sure I beat up, I really, really beat up the people, uh, the, the firemen that I was asking to, to do these jobs. Because it's just, you know, put that house out, well, the house next to it catches, the house next to it catches, the house across the street catches, and they're heavily involved in this one. It's just radiant heat from all four sides, breathing, uh, you know, smoke, uh, significant amounts of smoke, and it just, I, I almost needed that to happen in the beginning because it allowed me to change how I thought as the day progressed, and um, we really changed our tactics to where if we couldn't defend a line, once it got past us, we, we made the decision to bump out earlier. Does that weigh heavy on you? Yeah, it does. Be, you know, we take extreme precautions to not expose our guys to, um, you know, products of combustion. Now that's hard to do when I say that we're firefighters, but what I mean by that is we, we clean our gear, we consistently wear air packs, we, you know, to protect our breathing in, that kind of thing. And it's, you know, it's a, it's a big push we do inside of uh, the fire service to try to protect our guys. Everybody's who does this job is at a much, much higher risk of um, getting cancer at earlier ages than uh, the general population. So we've put steps in place to try to protect ourselves from that. And all of these things that we do by the nature of this incident kind of went out the, the window. Every single one of our firefighters out there burned through every uh, SCBA that we had on the engine, and they did that in the first hour. Well, this was a 40-hour incident. Um, from the time that these guys got on scene to the time that they first left. Okay, so, um, and I could see it in their faces. I could see it in every single one of these firefighters had bloodshot red eyes. Um, some of them, their eyes were so swollen, they, they, it looked like they were just closed. Um, I, I could see, you know, um, some of our guys just take that, so that took so much smoke that were on all on all fours, you know, dry heaving at one point that they were just they just uh, ingested so much smoke, and that's not uh, we we really take a lot of steps to protect our guys from that. In this case, it wasn't possible. Now we we do operate under a, a um, risk benefit um, analysis that you know when we are operating on these scenes, and we will. Um, <clears throat> take a lot of risk for life safety. And this is what, what, what it fell under in this incident. Right, and so, and I asked you this question before we actually started the interview, but this, you said, happened to you a lot, where you would have three, four crews in front of a, an apartment complex or mobile home park ready, just saying, we're gonna stop it right here. We're gonna do it, this is it and the fire switched positions. It was looking good. It was looking like y you were getting a handle on it. The fire switched positions because of the wind. It's now behind your guys, and you're saying, get out right now. Yep. Leaving fire hose behind. Mm-hmm. Yep. So that's, we call that a task force, and we had um, 
I would, that's what I was in charge of. So I uh, was uh, a commander and had five fire engines with me. And each, you know, each engine had four people on their crew, um, a captain, an engineer, and two firefighters. And so what we would do is find areas that would accommodate us making a line as the, as the fire is approaching. And we would connect all five of those engines up to hydrants and we'd use uh, the deck guns that are up on top of the, the fire engines that can, can flow a lot of water. And we would try to just create a wall, a wall uh, to, to stop that. Well, the problem with the, the, the wind we were experiencing that day and the type of fires we were dealing with, and we, we call this um, a wildland incident. You hear people talk about interface fire. This was very much one gigantic structure fire, one wind-driven structure fire uh, that, you know, that it was, that was what was causing us the bulk of the problems, you know. Right. But uh, so that was sending embers up to, you know, a half a mile or more out in front of us and that would light fires behind us and compromise our positions. And by the time we, um, I would make the call to leave, at least with my, my companies, it was, yeah, it was really uh, a sketch situation. They had to go and they had to go right now. And uh, we displaced like that probably seven times on that uh, initial 40 hour period. Wow. Uh, a question for both of you, JJ, I'll start with you. In making that de those decisions, those really tough decisions, you even showed me video, you're driving through a neighborhood where everything on one side of you is on fire, everything on the other side of you is not, but you have to, you have to drive through that and drive away from that knowing that you cannot protect that property. What was that like? Yeah, it was horrible. And again, like I said, I, that had to progress through the day. I needed to kind of get uh, my butt kicked on that first that first one where I just I thought we could do it and we came out of there. To a point where you were okay with it, you were okay with leaving the property behind that you knew it was going to burn. Yeah, okay. yeah, it 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 had to it had to be that way for because there was so much there was so much more. If you if you sat there and focused on that, you you couldn't concentrate entirely on what lied ahead, and there was a lot that lied ahead. Yeah, totally. You had to. We're used to showing up and addressing problems and making things better and then going back to the firehouse. And so we had to, in our minds, come to the realization that we're not just going to make this thing better right now. And we have to re-adjust um, all of our strategies and tactics. And that was tough. That was tough to be able to, one, um, accept the defeat, if you will. Um, and then that's hard for firefighters to do. Um, and and it it was having those conversations on the street of back burning rows of houses like we would in the forest with trees uh, we didn't actually do that but just those are the types of conversations I mean we were to that point to where the typical strategies and tactics that we deploy on a daily basis they were just not working and so we were pulling all um, ideas out of the box. We we're trying to think outside of the box. To, you got to get this fire out. We got to get this fire out. And so uh, we'd go to the largest defensible space we could find, the largest amount of asphalt and concrete that we could to really set up. But the wind, 
the wind was carrying those embers. And, you know, the fire started as a wildland event and went to a, a wildland urban interface incident, and then it totally transitioned to an urban conflagration and totally different types of fire. And so when you have buildings that are burning with all the the materials, uh, the construction materials and the and the fuel loads that's in all these houses with the synthetic materials. And this is not your typical wildland event. Everything about an urban conflagration is polar opposite of your typical wildland event. And we're not accustomed to that. We're not accustomed to that. And, and you know, we're, we're in our wildland gear. We're, we're in wildland mode. And so when you're having to shift your strategy and your tactics to this large structure fire as JJ was just speaking. Um, and so it's, it's hard to say, okay, we're gonna write these two streets off. We're gonna go set up here. And it's a bad feeling because you, there, there was a couple times that, you know, as the day progressed, it wasn't as difficult to pull the crews and have them you know, reestablish a new position. But at first it's like, what? We're going to leave this position? It's like, yes, because if we don't, we're not going to be able to go home when this is over with. We have to reposition. And that took a while to resonate to them. But then I, <clears throat> I felt a sense of appreciation from the guys that they, we were making those decisions for them. From the outside looking in, I think the majority of the population and the community would think that this is absolutely insane but do you think there's a sense of failure among some of the guys who were on the ground in the very beginning, having to leave homes that they were trying to defend and watch them go up in, in, in smoke? I think, that, I think that we definitely have a group of folks that are struggling with that because it's so non-typical and it's so opposite of what we do. And so I think that initially, after the first several days when things really started settling in, sinking in, uh, that's when I think it started hitting. You know, after that first, you know, three or four days when it was nonstop, when the adrenaline rush was over, and now you're on the adrenaline dump, um, and they're at home recovering, uh, that's when I think it starts um, messing with your mind a little bit and you start rethinking everything and did I really do everything uh, that I could have did we really do the right thing by abandoning this house did you know that's when and that's when it gets tough and that's when the firefighter support network really comes into play and you have to be able to talk to one another and um, the critical incident stress debriefings and you know that those things are essential and huge uh, any kind of disaster you know, the, that's one of the first things that we want to make sure is that we have some resiliency, you know, with the, with the um, behavioral um, health component. JJ, did you find that in the days after, kind of with too much time on your hands, sitting there thinking, going, did I make that right decision? Did I make that right decision? You know, because you could look at it and say, your crews, all of your crews came home. So that's success. That's success in my book. Right, right. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it, I wouldn't say it felt like a failure, but it did feel, um, well, with us being on scene initially, it felt like there was, we, there was gonna be a much, much larger loss of life 
than took place. And I don't mean to take away from uh, uh, the people who were lost, obviously. Um, but in, the, in that first downtime where the, the fire front at least stopped and we still had all, you know, everything was still burning. With their guys were really, really uh, frustrated and upset because again, if you go back to the beginning of it and what we were hearing, you just felt like we were just losing people left and right. Um, so the, the number of lives lost for what the incident was was shocking. I, I would have never guessed it. It would have been as few as it was. Um, and just on that note, as I'm, I'm in, as I'm talking about it, I should mention um, that I would attribute that entirely to uh, the law enforcement community of Southern Oregon. I, it was one of the most impressive things I've ever seen. Um, all of the law enforcement, and I, I, I don't want to name them because I, I don't want to forget one, but um, to see them operating in that environment, they saved thousands and thousands of lives and uh, super, super thankful they were there. It was one last thing you guys didn't have, you didn't have to worry about. No, as we moved from position, I mean, don't get me wrong, every, every, every fire engine out there has rescue stories, you know, um, where in every, probably most of the chiefs that were down there too, we all threw somebody in our car at one point and got them out of a situation. But it was the law enforcement community that was out in front of us. I mean, you could see these guys, they were, tearing up and down uh, these roads, getting people out of there as quick as they could, and um, you know, going, going in places they shouldn't have been. It, they were completely out of their element as well, but um, just I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that. They absolutely, uh, they were the ones uh, rescuing and saving people that day. Because as, as we moved place to place to place, the people just were not there, and that is entirely because of them. And and a failure may have been a bad word, but I think we were talking about this before the interview too. It is your job to save people and save property. And again, I think most of the community doesn't think this way at all, but a lot of, for a lot of the guys that were on the ground that day, it's like, we didn't, we didn't do that job. We didn't get to do that job because this fire was just a, a beast. Yeah. Yeah, it, it took, a while to get there. You said in, in the couple days after the fire. Well, our help, it, it took a while for our help to come. So these same people that we asked so much of in the first 40 hours literally went home for six and then came back for another 12. And that's, we didn't have um, another set of relief coming in and that not for at least a week right. before we started getting resources from outside of the community besides for a single task force we got out of uh, Multnomah County, I believe. And um, thank goodness for them, they helped out a lot. But uh, otherwise, it was, you know, it was your local fire departments that stayed on for the next, next week. And I, I've never seen a response um, from our agency like we saw in this one, where we literally had, um, you know, almost 100% of people there for an entire uh, week. It was after that point that guys started, um, the firefighters started, you know, being like, man, we got, we really got, uh, got it handed to us out there. <laughs> and so, yeah, we're not used to um, losing like that. We, you know, we go to a, a building on fire and uh, put it out. It's, it's, it wasn't normal. So, yeah, the guys were really uh, kind of, it was weighing on them for sure. 
Is there some PTSD in the department right now? I think there is. Um, the main thing that you know we're focusing on is supporting those who are showing some signs of that, but also reassuring them that just how non-typical this event was. And so how, you know, we could have had a thousand people on duty that day and we would have still got um, our tails handed to us. Um, it, it was the fire conditions, it was like the perfect storm. And there wasn't a failure of our people. And that's what, you know, really the message that we were trying to drive um, to everyone is that everybody performed up beyond the expectation. You performed above your training standard. I mean, it was, they did phenomenal. And, and so that's just, you have to continue to reassure them of that and, and just really lay it out there of just how non-typical of a day this was. Um, I want to ask you guys final thoughts from that day. So just sort of be thinking about that, but um, kind of the last question um, for you. But getting back to sort of the PTSD, obviously you guys have your eyes on that and, and you're watching that. Um, but looking back, JJ, for you, were you just, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but were you just so proud of these crews and just how they, I know Chief Thompson said they were just going, 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 wouldn't even stop to eat, although they had to. I mean, were you just like, your thoughts on, on your crews? Yeah, there is a point at our 36 when we all gathered and um, we felt like, okay, we've stopped forward progress. Everything's still on fire, but we've stopped forward progress. And it, and you're standing there, um, this is an opportunity where uh, Chief and I and a couple of the other officers were standing in front of the entirety of the, the department as we're addressing them. And to be honest, looking, looking across the crowd, um, they, they, they looked like zombies. I mean, they just really, um, had, they'd given us everything. I mean, they had just given us everything. And yes, um, you're not putting words in my mouth because that's exactly how I describe it. It was, it was awesome to see um, all these guys and what they, what they had just done, what they had given. And, and yeah, uh, we, we did get our tail kicked, but um, they fought for uh, every single inch and there was a lot of inches. Mm -hmm. and and two, what I saw was a unity like I've never seen before. And so when you have an event that was as great as, it was, as this was to the scale, and just seeing everybody side by side, shoulder to shoulder, supporting each other, um, that was awesome. And seeing, you know, they were tired. They were mentally and physically wiped out, but they weren't stopping. They were still willing to keep going, keep going, keep going. Um, this sounds odd, but the spirits at that time were high. They really were. And they were high because they were lifting each other up and they were supporting each other. Um, it was it was pretty emotional. You know, I know for me, I don't know, it was probably 9.30 that evening, close to 10 o'clock, around hour 36. and. You know, it was, uh, we're kind of telling them what the next day is gonna entail. And 
something just kind of, I was trying to, how do I address them? You know, and they were all wanting to go home. They were tired. Um, but I felt that as the fire chief, I needed to say something to our men. Um, and, you know, I told them exactly what I was feeling from my heart and what I was seeing from my eyes. And it was just how proud I was of them, um, how just selfless service. And um, I couldn't have been more proud as a chief um, at that time just because of what I just witnessed and the things that they have gone through. But the proud moment is everybody's got to go home. Everybody got to go home and see their family, hug their wife and their kids, their parents. That's what was cool because the first half of our career, there was a couple of times I didn't know if that was going to be the case. And my number one job in this organization is to make sure we try to prevent that. And that day, we weren't all sure that that was going to happen. And I'm just very thankful and proud that we were able to accomplish that. I'm very thankful as well. Thank you. Um, what is there an image from that? Whew, is there an image from that day, night, the next day that you will never forget? Kind of as a final thought or any final thought in general, is there something that when you think about September 8th, is there something that just really sticks out to you? I, I think it's just the sheer magnitude uh, of, of the event. The, it was, there was just points there looking at the glow, which just truly seemed like you're staring in the face of a monster and uh, it wasn't mentioned. Um, in this conversation yet, but one of the things that really, that I will remember is just the, the number of catastrophic explosions that uh, were going off. I mean, there was, there was big explosions all day, all night, but there was 10 of them that shook the ground uh, that I, 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 it made me question what in the world that could have possibly been um, but it, that, that's kind of stuck with me. It's just. Do you do you know what that was? I don't. No, I don't. <laughs> you know, um, you know that there were there were gas stations that burned up and large fuel tanks. And I'm sure I'm sure you know large the large propane tanks sitting next to to buildings. You know, but you know we've I've, I've in my career watched your barbecue tanks pop and stuff but that's it, that's not what i'm talking about no <laughs> these were teeth rattling explosions <laughs> and uh just shocking shocking explosions and you're right there you have no idea what it is yeah. you have no idea where it's coming from yeah no it's just black and orange around you yeah yeah crazy chief final thoughts it was just surreal you know standing in the middle of the street in the afternoon it's not supposed to be dark with the orange in the background. Um, the faces, not only of the community, just the, the fear in their eyes, um, but looking into the eyes of our firefighters, the soot 
stained faces and the red eyes. Um, you don't forget those things, you know, and those those just really resonate with me, you know, and um, it's just, it's hard to really sit here and we can watch videos and watch pictures and we can talk about it, but there's just some of it, it's just really hard to explain just because it was such a large scale incident. Right. Yeah, I mean, you do look at that, some of the video, video you showed me and I just can't, it's so hard to imagine. I've heard stories about, you know, guys pulling out somewhere, driving, they can't see. It's completely pitch black, running into a car, a parked car. I mean, it happened though, as you, as you two know well, very well. But um, I think that's it. If there's anything else I'm leaving out, that's important to throw in there. No, I, I mean, I know the community thanks you. The community is incredibly proud. We're very proud of our guys. Yeah, just I, I think it's the way our folks bonded together. Mm -hmm. You know, and they all worked. They really the definition of brotherhood. I mean, they lived it. They, they went through a war together. It was real. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Yeah, for sure. And uh, you know, to speak about the community as well, we saw a huge outpouring of um, man, the the donation spigot we had to shut off. It was just, uh, you know, the, the community was great, great to us and, uh, and all the other counterparts south of us that got affected as well. So it was uh, really appreciated. Awesome. I think that'll do it. Thanks again to Chief Thompson and Battalion Chief John for opening up to me about that day. And a big thanks to News 10 editor Felicia Lachere for her camera and audio work on that shoot and for editing the video version of this podcast. You can watch episodes of Offscript on KTVL.com or on YouTube. Audio versions are available wherever you like to listen to podcasts.